Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Issue Podcast on the ASGCT Podcast Network. I'm your host, Emily Walsh-Martin, and today we have a very special guest on the pod, Federico Mengozi. Are we incredibly lucky because Federico's first ASGCT podcast could have easily been on giants of gene therapy? Probably. Am I psyched that he could join us for an in-depth chat about his career journey and AAV immunogenicity? Absolutely. For those of you who don't know Federico, he has done seminal work throughout his career in AAV gene therapy and his 2020 molecular therapy review of our current understanding of the interplay between these therapies and the immune system is a must read for anyone trying to get a handle on the very complicated landscape of immune reactions to viral vectors. Will we solve all the challenges in the field over the course of the podcast? Definitely not. But will you leave enriched in your understanding? I sure hope so. Thanks for joining us. But before we get into the conversation, I want to remind everyone that the ASGCT annual meeting will be here before you know it. Meet us in Baltimore, May 7th through 11th for the only must-attend event in cell and gene therapy. Keynote speakers this year include Drs. Beverly Davidson, Charles Murray, Kevin Campbell, and Philip Gregory. There's no better place to deep dive in this field than the ASGCT annual meeting. You will not find the same breadth or depth of cell and gene therapy research anywhere in the world. Now entering its 27th year, the ASGCT annual meeting is the premier event for professionals in our field, and ASGC team members receive some truly incredible discounts on registration. So renew your membership and sign up for the meeting at asgct.org. Can't wait to see you there. Hi, Federico Mengozi. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining. Um, you and I first met uh, on a panel at this past year's ASGCT annual meeting. And one of the things that struck me was that we've we've both had very distinct career paths that led us to gene therapy drug development. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey? Yes, absolutely. And hi, Emily. Uh, I'm very happy to be here today. And and. It's a great follow-up to that moment when we first met at the ASGCT. So my path in, in gene therapy, uh, I would say I started my career in science in, in Italy. I studied at the University of Ferrara all the way to PhD. And there I was working on the genetics of coagulation factors. And nothing was really related to gene therapy. But in fact, the... Uh, fact that I was working on coagulation factors was a link to uh, my postdoc. In fact, in 2000, I uh, moved to the United States as a postdoc working with, at the time, Roland Herzog. And we started working on uh, gene transfer with AV vectors to deliver. And we were actually studying the induction of uh, immunological toler tolerance to proteins expressed in the liver, and particularly clotting factors. That was my first time with gene therapy. And then after my postdoc, I continued to work on gene therapy. This time I was working with Katie High, 
still at shop. And we started to, it was the first time really that was exposed to the idea of bringing a gene therapy all the way to the clinic. And it was an exciting journey. I was there until 2013. And during that time, we um, were working not only on the development of gene therapies for hemophilia, uh, and also we were working also with Jim Bennett and developing the, the uh, gene therapy for uh, Leber's congenital amaurosis, which then later on became an approved product, Lexterna. And, and so that was the time then truly we were uh, uh, facing the challenges of bringing a therapy, a new therapy, a gene therapy, all the way to patients, along with the study of uh, the immune responses encountering gene therapy, which is a big chapter of my career and also still a, a very important point uh, and hurdles of uh, viral uh, gene therapies. And then... That was really a fantastic period and, uh, and a highlight of my early career in science in academia. After that, I stayed in academia. I actually moved to France to become an independent uh, scientist. Uh, we had a research group at Genethon, which is a research institute uh, outside Paris. And I was also part of the INSERM, which is the equivalent of the uh, NIH, the American NIH. And there I continue my work in gene therapy as well as immunology. And we brought to the clinic uh, gene therapy for uh, a rare uh, liver indication called uh, uh, Krigler-Najjar syndrome. And that was my career in academia <laughs> until I remember it was the European Society of Gene Therapy meeting in 2016. I believe, yes. And I met again, Kathy High, and she was talking about these companies, Spark Therapeutics, and how there was the opportunity to join the company. And, and that's what happened. In 17, I joined Spark as the, as the chief scientific officer, and I was there for a, for a while, uh, for more than six years, first as a CSO, then a chief science and technology officer until about a month ago when right. I started a new job. <laughs> right. So you you started a new voyage right now. Um, so you're the CEO for a biotech, which is still in stealth. Um, what what are you looking forward to uh, with this, this new adventure? With this new adventure, I think there's, there's multiple things I'm looking for. Uh, the first is I am a scientist by training and... And I'm looking forward to learn what it means to be a CEO of a company. And I uh, sometimes I joke actually with people and I say, I have a lot of gaps in my understanding of the, way the what the job of a CEO is to the point that I feel like they're canyons. They're not simply gaps. <laughs> and so there's a lot to learn and grow on my end. And as well as scientifically, because the this new venture is still in genomic medicine, something that is very close to my heart, my scientific heart, and uh, is a play with different technologies from what I've been doing for the past uh, 20 plus years. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, so there's this, I, I hope this will be a fantastic journey, both personally, professionally, but also scientifically. 
Yeah. And and maybe we can uh, get the will he, won't he out of the way right now. I'm guessing you're not going to be able to yet share the name of your new venture. Uh, so we'll maybe just have to stay tuned. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, it will be a little while at the moment we decided that it's not the right time to, to disclose what's the name of the company, but eventually we will uh, do so. All right, maybe maybe we'll have you back on the podcast to break the news. Um, <laughs> but before uh, before we get too distracted, let's go back to your career journey because I think you know you've had a career journey that a lot of folks at ASGCT can relate to um, because you've had that transition from academia to industry. And I'm I'm curious uh, when you look back on that time, what were some of the biggest surprises for you in sort of making that that move? That's an excellent question. In fact, um, I must say one of the biggest, uh, before I go into that, even one of the, the biggest drivers of my decision was to be in an environment that will allow me to do more for patients. Mm. So I experienced what it meant to bring a therapy from bench to bedside in academia. And that was a fantastic journey, but, but very limited by the resources available. And so I wanted to be in a context where I could do more for patients and do more uh, at the same time, which is something also that the idea of bringing a therapy all the way to the finish line is something that uh, biotech is, is is better suited than, than academia, although academia can still do a lot in terms of innovation, even clinical innovation. Then I joined uh, Spark. And of course, um, coming from academia, I I thought I knew everything I needed to know, and that was not the case. <laughs> and in fact, I found myself surrounded by incredibly smart people who taught me a lot. And, um, and that was the first point that was very important for me. I I learned quickly that drug development is, is very complex and and requires a lot of skills that are not only the the, the science skills and 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 i think that uh was something that in in the academic environment i didn't completely grasp and then the second point that i thought it was very uh eye-opening and and very important is that when you are like an independent investigator you run your team essentially you are the sole decision maker most of the time and that's not the kind of uh, model of a company or at least of a successful company where, in fact, you need to uh, join the brains of and the skills and, and make decisions that uh, are usually reached through consensus and through analysis of the problem you're trying to solve for. And, and so those are some of the learnings that were uh, crucial, I think, in my early days at Spark. And the last one, I would say, probably more relevant also, again, for, for a company, I learned how it's important to forget about the ego mm. and, and rather be a good team player and think always for the best of the company and the patient and what you're doing. Oh, my gosh. So many things that you just said resonate uh, so deeply with me. I think for me, my experience has also been that perhaps even more so than on the small molecule drug dis discovery and development side, uh, gene therapy is a team sport. You're not going to get across the goal line without tapping uh, a large diversity of expertises. 
And so, uh, you know, for me, like what I always tell teams is uh, reasonable people with the same information come to similar conclusions. And so I feel like if we can get all of the information out on the table and and think it through, that's when we're best in a position to make good decisions that are going to help advance a program uh, meaningfully for patients. Yeah, I I, I want to I, I I agree hundred percent, and and the reason why this is particularly relevant for gene therapy is because gene therapy gene therapies I should use the plural are complex and they're new, and oftentimes you're facing more unknowns than knowns, and so you you have to make sure you have the right people around the table, and and one person doesn't know everything necessarily. Right. And and the data sets are somewhat limited, right? Like the expanse of uh, clinical exploration of small molecule pharmacokinetics and pharmacology is grand compared to the small numbers of patients who've um, had an AAV type therapy uh, and, and the length of time we've been able to, to follow them. And so uh, a lot of times we're trying to, I think, take the best information that's publicly available to help inform decisions. And um, it's still limited, <laughs> that, that information. So we're having to really understand on a deep level why we're why we're making certain choices as we develop these therapies. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I I do like I feel I feel like we're we're starting to get very close in our conversation here to the concept of immunology because for me that was always one of the biggest <laughs> unknowns. And and I will say, I uh, use your uh, 2020 molecular therapeutics overview <laughs> um, as like uh, required reading for all of my clients who are maybe, you know, first coming, it's their first time doing gene therapy, because I think you so eloquently lay out the complexities of the way that the immune system interacts with viral vectors. I'd love to know what your thoughts are about how much we've learned since you first started <laughs> and also what's what's still out there to learn. That's a, that's a great question. By the way, that paper, um, it, it's, uh, it's interesting because it's, uh, I was very surprised to see is one of the, the most cited papers in the molecular therapy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's it's, it's possible I'm, I'm single-handedly responsible for that because I, I basically just hand it out to everyone. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, clearly, we've learned a lot. I mean, I, if, I, if I go back to the days... Uh, this, these are the beginning of 2000, maybe 2004... Or so we were trying to understand what happened exactly in in the first trial of uh, liver gene therapy. It was a liver gene therapy for hemophilia B that we we conducted at CHOP, and we had evidence that um, there was an immune response. But then things were really at the beginning, right? We were trying to understand which cell types were involved and. And there was not a lot that we we knew at the time. If you fast forward twenty years, today we I think we learn a lot, uh, and in particular, we learned that we're dealing with when it when it comes to AAV, uh, one of the, the the important players in what we see as far as immune responses is actually 
the early recognition of the virus by the innate immune system. In particular, we learned that we could design vectors that are a little less immunogenic than what we used to design by, for example, uh, eliminating uh, CG dimers from the genome. Uh, we learn about the role of uh, complement, and that's uh, still an open uh, chapter. We also learned that the downstream immune responses involve CDAT cells and all of that, right? And finally, we also learned that there's definitely a dose dependence in what we observe in the clinic uh, with AAV, where uh, definitely we can see some immune response that tend to be relatively benign in terms of uh, uh, clinical manifestations, so they tend to be asymptomatic and so on, at lower vector doses. Of course, the risk there is that you will lose expression, so you, you, your therapy doesn't work, but there hasn't been severe or long-lasting uh, detrimental outcomes in, in gene therapy trials. And then as we bump up the dose, as, as it was done for, for some, of, some trials, particularly uh, in, in neuromuscular uh, diseases, then we can encounter more acute toxicities, which seem to be complement-derived or related to the underlying condition, for example, uh, hepatic toxicities and so on. So we learn a lot about the mechanisms behind uh, these immune responses to AV. And then we also learn uh, more about how to address some of these immune-related issues. Part of it is uh, using immunosuppression. I think the, the initial breakthrough, which was very, very simple, in fact, was when Amit Natwani and the David of, uh, so we're talking about UCL, Univers University College London, and the St. Jude Children's uh, Research Hospital, they started their AV trial for hemophilia B. This time it was an AV8 vector. And basically what they did when they saw when they saw an immune response and increasing liver enzymes, they gave steroids. And that was actually, that worked. And was one of the first evidences that... Um, you could achieve long-term expression of uh, a transgene in, in humans. Then we, over time, we learned that steroids work, but not all the time. So we, we also learn and are learning uh, that perhaps in some cases, more complex immunosuppressive regimens are needed. Then I, I, I cannot talk about immune responses to AV without saying that we're also always dealing with uh, the fact that humans are exposed to AV. And so we we have immunity to these vectors. And, and one of the most limiting aspects of this pre-existing immunity is the presence of antibodies to AV. And so um, that has been also, I work a lot on the topic <laughs> in my past. And I would say, having antibodies to AV precludes the possibility to receive a gene therapy, whether that's the first gene therapy you will receive or, or, or the re-administration of the vector. And what is exciting is that while 20 years ago there was nothing to be done, now there's a lot of potential solutions also for that problem, whether that's um, the removal of these antibodies or, uh, you know, there's many solutions that have been, de they've been developed in the preclinical space with some of them uh, soon to be applied in clinical trials. So I think in 20 years, we've done a lot of work, but also we've gone a long way 
this was a long answer, but <laughs> no, no. But it, what I what I love about the answer is I think you you almost approach the answer in some ways. Uh, I guess how the field experienced it. So when you know, for instance, if if anyone now like goes to read your 2020 molecular therapy paper, um, uh, it, what one of the things that you know, you present very, very nicely is this concept that there's sort of three phases of the immune reaction, right? So there's the pre-existing immune uh, uh, component, there's the innate immunity that happens in the course of days, maybe a week, and then there's the sort of weeks, months uh, adaptive response that occurs. And what I was struck with as you spoke is that, you know, I think we as a field learned about these, not in that order. <laughs> we learned about these based on the fact of the tools that were available to us at the time. So we had assays for neutralizing antibodies or, or reasonable assays. And so that helped us to elaborate that part of the story. We had, uh, you know, later these, you know, liver function tests. And then as you, as you pointed out, the Nadwani experience, uh, you know, applying, um, steroids after LFT elevation sort of taught yeah. us, okay, that's that's an immune part. I, I guess it, it strikes me that so much of our progress in understanding immunology has almost been sort of log step transitions as we get new sort of technologies that allow us to drive the inquiry better. Yeah. I mean, the, the, absolutely. That that's That's very true. And then the other point that is very important is that a lot of these immune responses are not predicted in animal models, right? Right. <laughs> and, so, and that was a, the, the, the true big, big challenge and still is, right? Yeah. Uh, basically, uh, a lot of what we see happens only in the clinic. And as you were saying earlier, rightly, is that these, these are not trials of thousands of, of participants, right? These are small trials for rare diseases where we and others try to do their best to learn as much as possible about what was driving certain uh, immune reactions uh, and immune toxicities. It's not easy because, again, the numbers tend to be small and it's very hard to go back and reproduce the findings in animal models, in most it of the animal models. And, and the reactions don't necessarily, it's not like every patient has the same right. type of reaction. And, and also, while we certainly, as you, as you rightly pointed out, we see dose uh, responsiveness to some of these reactions, that's also not, uh, you know, a perfect linear line either. So it does complicate, I'd say, truly understanding this, for sure. It's very humbling, I will say, because... And I'm a biologist by training, so I'm not even I'm not a clinician. And I would say that in the research on the research side, things are, are difficult, but you tend to work on models that are uh, more or less controlled. And then the human system is is the ultimate non-controlled system, right? Where you have genetics, environmental factors, disease-specific uh, features, and which can be underlying immune uh, underlying inflammation or there's a whole history that is hard to reproduce in a lab and uh, and there's a whole uniqueness of the 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 the, the, the human immune system or, or the, the human body which then uh, results in a, a relatively high variability of outcomes right and and there's a limitation to sort of how we can fully understand things like so for instance in hindsight 
you know, the fact that many of the initial sort of efforts in the space focused on hemophilia, they focused on factor nine, uh, and that actually gave us an amazing handhold because that's something that you can, you know, very easily monitor over time and look at the impact and, uh, you know, the waxing and waning of, of the expression levels to try and understand by adding the steroids, are we helping, are we hurting, what's going on? And, and so as you think about maybe some of the indication space that people are, are going after today, like it, it seems uh, quite a bit harder uh, to necessarily draw those correlates, right? For, for say a neuromuscular indication. A hundred percent. That that's a super important uh, concept, which is the, the concept of what endpoints you're going to follow to understand or to guide your your clinical decision, for instance, in managing immune responses. Hemophilia is, is the best. There's a few diseases that are similar uh, where you have a clear endpoint you follow, a clear marker, biomarker that you follow, and you know that you know if you are losing efficacy and you know it pretty quickly, and so you can actually uh, uh, design an intervention. Uh, the, the the issue uh, for non-secreted proteins like in neuromuscular diseases or a protein that you're expressing uh, 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 in in a closed compartment, uh, let's say, is that you cannot follow that. And I would say even the uh, a lot of the immunological tests that we run, for example, an immu- uh, uh, an Eli spot, which is a common gold standard for uh, immunomonitoring. Uh, it's hardly ever a good tool for to make clinical decisions, and that's a big challenge. And so, while while you can still learn a lot, uh, I think you you're still facing the question of what do I do. And generally, I w- I'm I'm going to generalize a little bit here, but I think it's something that that has been done in the field, and I think it makes also sense is that when you don't have a good biomarker that you can follow, then you try to design your clinical protocol in a way that you have sufficient, you put in in place some immunomodulation, let's say that uh, will prevent the immune response so you don't have to worry too much about monitoring because you don't have any way to monitor. And that could be also the case case of, uh, for example, if you're going to a disease affecting the CNS, where uh, it's not like liver, there's very limited regenerative re- regenerative potential in the central nervous system, then you want to really try to design something where you maintain a good level of immunosuppression, you avoid inflammation, yeah. uh, and you have to do it more uh, thoroughly than again, a hemophilia where you can monitor expression, where a liver inflammation tends to be self-limited and not, not a big deal because the liver will regenerate and so on. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I just remember early days, there were lots of debates, it seemed, about you know how aggressive should one uh, prophylax and the like. Uh, and I it feels like uh, to your point, we're, we're sort of landing in a spot where we're recognizing that 
because this is one and done, meaning you have one shot on goal uh, to provide the the sort of best transduction and the best you know chance at efficacy for these patients. Um, there's something to be said for thoughtful, um, you know, immunosuppression that um, reduces the likelihood that you're going to see things even from the beginning. Yeah, and th- there's also another factor that that I think is important. If we think beyond trials, mm. and we want to put ourselves in a real-life scenario where these therapies are actually approved therapies, then it's unlikely that we can have a system where you have a very, very close monitoring on each of every patient because there will be that, that's not the real life, right? So you want to be in a situation where you can prophylactically address these immune responses and not worry too much about monitoring the patient every minute. I think is is more feasible, let's say, clinically. Absolutely, yeah. Let's shift gears just a little bit and and talk about some of the other challenges that are. I think still facing the field, and and one of the ones that I think a lot about. I I don't know if uh, if if you'll agree, is the unknowns around how many cells do we need to transduce to have the best benefit, particularly for a non-secreted payload, right? And it feels like something where, in some cases, we're very lucky. We have sort of human genetics to maybe point us in a certain direction for if you can correct, uh, you know, 20% of cells, you'll, you'll see a benefit and that sort of thing. But for some of these indications where it's not a secreted protein, like, like hemophilia, like how do, how do you approach, uh, questions like this? And where do you think, uh, biology is going to land on the whole (laughs) for some of these other indications? That's a very, that's an excellent question. And a question that, it is a little bit hard to generalize, but I right. will try to, to discuss it a little bit. In a way, uh, the trial that we started in uh, when I was in France, and, and actually we published that a few months ago, is one of the examples. Uh, so Krigler-Najjar syndrome is actually a, a deficiency of a protein that is not secreted. And we know that heterozygous are actually healthy. So we know that 50% is enough. But we also know that in a way with AV, at let's say the doses that we intended to use, uh, 50% transduction is, is very hard to achieve. And so we did a lot of experiments in, in case you have an animal model, let's say, you can do the real life experiments where you try to uh, see if you can achieve correction of your Uh, disease uh, phenotypes or biomarkers uh, and what you need to get uh, to to get that correction. Now, playing by simple numbers, so 50% uh, or 30% and and using the genetics is not always exactly right just because sometimes or oftentimes in, in gene therapy you tend to have one cell that expresses more than 100 percent right of a wild type right. because we use fairly refined and strong promoters to drive expression uh, and so what we learn in Krigan Najar is actually that we think that the level of expression that we achieved in liver will are probably around five to ten percent so pretty low but then uh, the assumption is that probably these, these hepatocytes, they express more than a wild-type cell. 
and the clinical experience as well as preclinical showed that we could achieve the in, in this in the case of Krill and Ajar is the clearance of uh, bilirubin unconjugated bilirubin from from the circulation so um we saw that both preclinically and clinically again here is a very good animal models very good biomarker so everybody's happy here and that's not always the case and then it can be more complicated it's hard to generalize because in some cases you really need to hit probably most of the cells right. to achieve an outcome because even having a cell that is not corrected may cause an issue. Right. Um, yeah, it's it reminds me of because I trained as a developmental biologist yeah. once upon a day, and it's it's that difference between sort of cell autonomously required right. in a tissue uh, where where maybe five percent, as long as it's in every cell, is good enough, versus required uh, more bulk action, if you will. So you know, if five percent of cells are a hundred percent corrected, then that's good enough. It's a very different sort of challenge between those yeah. two for AAB? I would say probably one recommendation to yeah. make practical, I like practical things, um, is to try to develop some kind of a model mm. um, that that there is a disease model where you can have an idea of the ballpark or where you need to get right. and, and try to mimic in a way or understand your efficiency of transduction and transgene expression in a model that is relevant, may not be the disease model, but is relevant to humans, like a large animal model. Right. And so I think that's very, very important. And, and it's something that becomes um, very important, for example, in, in or, or particularly more important for uh, tissues that are uh, harder to transduce uh, efficiently. Uh, I'm thinking about the brain, right? Uh, right. So you want to really optimize your uh, delivery and your overall vector and, and everything that you do around it to really achieve the desired coverage, the desired transduction of your target tissue. I'm being a little general here, but, but I think it's very, very important to make sure that uh, you have some data in, in a model that is that represents well the complexities of the of the human model and that's not the mouse for sure <laughs> right <laughs> right well and and i think you know it's it's funny sort of as you were speaking i i, I almost felt like it it took us back up to the top of our our discussion together because you know uh, you you identified like having having devices for instance that might help you to improve uh, the exposure in in the brain for instance having um uh you know other technologies sort of wrapped into uh, uh the sort of core of a of a capsid plus a payload and and how this at the end of the day all of this that we're doing is is teamwork um because none of us is going to be an expert in devices and the animal models and uh you know the disease perhaps etc um and and so i'm i'm curious uh maybe to return us back to the beginning you know when you're sitting on on a team um who's struggling through one of these issues how do you help that team get clear on on a framework for figuring out how to take that next step like what what have you seen help teams sort of 
I don't know, unhook and and figure out how to even take that next step forward when they're faced with a lot of these questions and unknown unknowns as well. That's really important. I, I would say the easy answer to your question <laughs> is, and what I all, always do actually, is I help people go find the right competencies they need to get what they need to do. For example, I think if you're trying to develop a gene therapy and you're trying to bring it all the way to the clinic, then you need to have, for sure, very strong um, help. I'm going to call it help, right? Or competencies in the whole part that is related to the product. So not only the process development, so the manufacturing, but also the analytical. Because then, then you get to know what are you're actually putting into patients, which is crucially important. And then, and then of course, depending on, on what you're trying to do, I think if you're facing some complex uh, disease or CNS disease, you definitely need a neurosurgeon. So the key is you need to assemble teams with the right competencies, and there's those they don't sit in one person, 100%. Uh, and and I've seen that in my previous job as Park, where we truly did uh, a lot of work over the years to have the right people around the table to develop uh, the therapies and the right advisors outside uh, to make sure that we covered all the complexities of what we we're trying to do. So probably to summarize my answer, when I find myself talking to people, I try to peel off all the layers of complexity and try to tell them, okay, you can get this from here and the other from there. But it's, it's hardly ever seen, let's say, one group that has, has it all, right? Because there's a lot of variables and a lot of things you have to take into account. I guess one last question for you, and it's, it's my favorite question. Um, if you could wave a magic wand... <laughs> And fix one thing. Actually, you're not limited to one. But if you can fix a thing that would help uh, cell and gene therapy development, what what would it be? I love this question. I could probably name a few technical uh, tricks that I would love to see solved. But actually, I think that uh, the field is is gone a long way and will get there. So I think things like cost of goods and manufacturing or immunogenicity, those things will come uh, and, and we're really truly getting there. What I would love to see is that the field and the regulators reach the right framework to help uh, develop gene therapies for uh, all diseases. In a way, uh, we've seen uh, in, in recent years that there's a shift of the industry a little bit away from rare, ultra rare. Mm. Uh, and so from diseases that don't really have a, a, a commercial value. And I think that's that's obviously sad and, and they, they, they leave, leave us with a, a, an important problem to solve. And then it's to be a combination, of course, of some technical advancements, but also some shift in the way regulators see the development of uh, cell and gene therapies for those diseases. Otherwise, they will be always 
too expensive, too difficult, and maybe sometimes impossible to develop therapies for these rare and ultra rare diseases. So I would I wish if I could just use my uh, if I if I was a magician and, and solve that, I will do it right away. Right. No, I like I, I like that a lot. And I, I think you point out something, you know, uh, I- incredibly important, right, which is that the challenges of developing, you know, forget even rare, ultra rare therapies are so difficult. And we are as much innovation, I think, as we're pouring into this field technologically, uh, we're going to need to pour into every part of what we're doing, be it regulatory, be it, you know, the payer side of things. Um, we're, we're just going to have to be as innovative as we can in order to see the benefit um, for as many patients as possible. Yes. And and I think that th- there is a rational because we, we, we see and we've seen that gene therapy can actually make a big difference, can provide uh, treatments that in, in some cases are curative for these diseases. So we cannot quite disregard that. Right, right. Yeah, it's, first of all, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, we as a field need to continue to sort of aim for that sort of you know, almost curative or basically curative sort of targets for these indications. And the hope has got to be that we can find some innovative strategies to find paths for for approval. If if that's what we're delivering, hopefully we can find uh, the regulatory flexibility to help that be successful. Right. Exactly. Great. Well, Federico Mingozzi, thank you so much for spending time with us. Really appreciate it and really appreciate everything you do. And uh, I'll continue to hand out your 2020 molecular therapy article and and drive up your score on that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Emily. This has been great. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you today. Mm-hmm.